0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, hey everyone! I'm here at the O'Reilly AI conference, and I'm sitting with Diogo Almeida, who just did a really interesting talk on deep learning, and he was kind enough to sit down with us and talk a little bit talk a little bit about what he talked about. <laughs> uh, Diogo, why don't you introduce yourself?
1: Cool. Um... I'm Diogo Almeida. I work at this super cool medical deep learning startup where we work on getting like really accurate, really fast, really safe medical diagnoses. And this is something that we hope will completely change the world. Um, before that, in uh, past life, I was a mathlete. So I broke a 13-year losing streak for the Philippines in the International Math Olympiad. Was uh, in the top team in the world at the Interdisciplinary Competition in Modeling. And there's a website for machine learning competitions called Kaggle that I uh-huh. won first place on in one competition as well. When was that? This was in 2013. Okay. It was the Cause-Effect-Pairs challenge.
0: Uh, tell us about that.
1: Oh, it was a very weird challenge where in most machine learning you have like tabular data. Right. So you, know, like you have columns of features, rows of observations. And in this problem, your data... Was pairs of sequences. So you have something like altitude, and like one exa- one observation is like altitude and height, and you have like a pair of uh sorry, a sequence of pairs of uh-huh. like which altitudes co- correspond to which height in some unordered manner. And the idea was, given this, you're supposed to predict whether altitude um, is causes height or height. Co- sorry, the so altitude and height were the same thing. I meant right. altitude and temperature. Right. So you were supposed to predict if altitude causes temperature, or temperature causes altitude. It's obviously that altitude causes temperature, right, for us. Uh But there's a lot of, like, very uh, complicated tasks that we don't know the answer to. And it's kind of, like, the basic task is to, if you know the saying, correlation doesn't imply causation. Right. It's supposed to do the opposite of that. So you're supposed to figure out how the correlation implies causation, okay. which is extremely useful because you have like lots and lots of observational data. Right. It's very hard to have like a controlled study. So the more accurate we can get a view of the world from purely observational data, the more we can um, either have informed priors before right. running the controlled study or figure out how to order the controlled study in an appropriate way.
0: Okay. And is this also the kind of analysis you would use for... Um like a root cause analysis or something in like an IoT use case where you've got all these observations and you're trying to figure out what the the
1: underlying condition is or I'm not as familiar with that um, there are there, were, there 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 was um, traditional statistical work and there was a, there there actually was a background for this topic but I kind of didn't pay much attention to that cuz okay. I kind of went my own way and it was much more for fun than for winning yeah. and winning was a very nice side effect nice um and I, I went through a much more like software oriented way mm-hmm. of just like build a really complicated powerful model okay. and have it solve this based on like rather than like hand engineering stuff why not just like automatically engineer a lot of informative variables and then solve it with that okay so, so
0: can you walk us through the process like how do you how did you uh, formulate a methodology for attacking them? Was this your first Kaggle competition or had you been oh, it's doing it my, my for first a while? Serial,
1: my first serious one. I, okay. I've done like one or two before that I didn't really, like, really spend much time on. Yeah. But like, you know, you quit like after two days because it turns out your teammates weren't useful or something like yeah. that. So I have like played with it before, but I've never really gotten all out until this one. So my methodology was, well, some background is that there are, like, statistical tests that people use yep. um, that um, did very well in this task. Okay. And, uh, um, or, sorry, that people used to use in this task. And to put it roughly in perspective, these got, like, 0.6-ish AUC. So mm-hmm. if you see a paper in Nature or Science about a new test for causality, it probably gets around 0.6-ish AUC.
0: Okay. Um, AUC, for those that don't know, is area oh. under the curve, and that's mm-hmm. a performance
1: metric? Yeah. So we were um, it was, we were solving a ranking problem. Okay. Or we were trying to rank the outputs, given that we know which ones were... Uh, which ones caused each other. It's a, it's a little bit of a complicated metric because we actually had three output classes. So we did like a bidirectional AUC, but that doesn't really matter much. Mm-hmm. And so these tests, we had like 0.6 AUC. They're roughly a single feature because it's just the prediction. You extract it directly from the data. Mm-hmm. Um, the Most of the other competitors in like the top 10 had, you know, tens of features or something like that. And the second placer, I think, had like a whooping like, Hundred something features. Okay, and I had fifty thousand. Wow. So okay. Um, so what I did was I found like a very simple um, way of determining causality, which would be um, the rationale would be um, if a- if X causes Y, then mm-hmm. um, Y is a function of X. You know, there's noise in there somewhere. Right. So roughly, you can tell how good one is a function of the other based on how well they can be approximated by functions. And this is kind of like a very vague like recipe for how to create these features, but the idea is rather than you know hard coding statistical tasks like you know like add a Gaussian integrate this thing out whatever, I just figure that we have an entire field of curve fitting which is called machine learning, uh-huh. right? And these are often like built after natural like very natural priors. So the idea would be try like a ton of machine learning algorithms, all of the ones that are computationally feasible. Try different metrics for what fit means because fit is It's 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 kind of like a not like a very exact term, and like throw like these are all the features now. Throw them all into like big uh, boost decision tree. Mm -hmm. Um, Train this thing for a week on like a fifty core machine, and then you know take a nap the entire time. So that was roughly my solution.
0: (laughs) Wow, Um, and so. The solution was, was primarily based around the boosted decision tree, as opposed to some super complex ensemble or something yes, like that? Yes,
1: actually, um, it's a weird story that for this competition, I was so far ahead for almost all of the competition, I didn't even try. Okay. So, um, the, what was it? Like, for basically everything beyond the last week... Like yep. uh, like maybe a month or a month and a half before that I even started the competition late, I was like so far ahead that the gap between like me and second place was like the equivalent of like, you know, second and like fifteenth or something like that. Oh wow. So I was like feeling really confident and I actually stopped paying attention to this because I felt that <laughs> like oh this is gonna be easy, right? But then during the last week, you know, someone, you know, people started sharing their solutions. Like uh-huh. I only got tenth or something here are the features i used and all of a sudden like everyone started rising okay and this is definitely basically
0: by creating ensembles of everyone's different everyone yeah. else's solutions um
1: like people like le- kind of hinted at what they, well, i think it was only one person but like they had like a lot of good stuff in there that other people started using okay and once people are getting performance they like make more of it or something yeah. like that so um people are starting to rise right right and like i didn't haven't even ensembled this far and I unfortunately had a model that took a, like a week to train, like I said. Yeah. So, and I only had a one week left for the competition, so I decided that um, I, I tried like a few last minute attempts at ensembling, uh-huh. but nothing beat my like my super big one week long model. Okay. And so I just stuck with that thing, and that ended up actually winning. And okay. it actually was very scary because people ended up passing me uh-huh. on the the training on the oh, really? on the, the validation leaderboard, yeah. but in the test leaderboard it was like it was completely flipped because. By,
0: they overfit.
1: Yeah, they oh, they, like they had like hundreds of submissions while like my best submission was like my sub tenth because okay. like it was like it was a very like hands off competition for me. Yeah. I cared about it a lot and I like I wrote like lots of software that was um, I thought nice, uh-huh. um, but like I was really I, I really really thought that would have been like an absolute slam dunk. Okay. So it's exciting though.
0: Okay. So where how, where did the fifty thousand features come from?
1: Um, so, uh, you can imagine like exponential growth when you're just trying like every combination of this with every combination of this. Yep. Um, there was like every combination of metric that I can think of every combination of machine learning algorithm that was like computationally tractable. There was like symmetric features. So you could like augment your thing with like difference features because like, it doesn't matter X yeah, extra sure. Y is. Right. Um, there was a. An, a nuanced thing that I don't normally explain when I talk about the competition, which is not all of the input was um, numerical. Some of it was categorical. Okay. And, like, it, you just can't, like, throw categorical data into a numerical algorithm, right? Right. So it becomes actually a complicated problem. Of how do you compare numerical so to categorical? there's just different
0: ways of calibrating your bins yeah. or something like that?
1: Well, I mean, you can, it's very easy to convert numerical to categorical. Yeah. But you lose a lot of information from yeah. that, right? So what I did was I did different ways of converting from, like... Like, this is, like, a, a categorical numerical pair metric. So yeah. this stuff, like, compare, you know, compute... Uh, sorry. Convert numerical to categorical via, like, clustering or binning or something. Right. And then, you know, when you want to convert categorical to numerical, you do something like the PCA, you know, like, get the first um, uh, principal component or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or projection to the first principal component. And I basically are just looping through all of these things. So you can imagine, like, a lot of nested-for loops. Okay. In the end, I had a bunch of them, so like that ended up with like fifty thousand ish. And I also wow. skipped a detail there, which is I also used a feature selection algorithm um, in order to like make it a little bit smaller, which okay. helped performance a bit, but it ended up not being important. So okay. I usually omit, but for the sake of clarity, that was also done. Okay.
0: Okay. Wow. That's that sounds pretty cool. And now. Uh, that was a little bit of a digression, I guess, because... <laughs> Yeah, complete digression, yeah.
1: Um, interesting story, though.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's actually
1: generalized to new problems as well. I believe the competition organizer was applying it to some sort of biology problems, and they were showing that it actually predicts causality on that as well. Oh, really? So, um, yeah, hopefully that kind of thing could be really useful.
0: Oh, nice, nice. Um, but what you were talking about here was deep learning.
1: Yep. <laughs> yeah, that was not deep at all. <laughs>
0: And i didn't catch uh, I didn't catch uh, all of your talk. I caught the last uh, bit of it, but um, it seemed like what you were going through was kind of a bunch of war stories lessons learned like you know you hear a lot about deep learning, you know, but there are a lot of things that people broadly believe about deep learning that actually are false mm-hmm. and um, why don't you explain kind of what your intent was for the talk and uh. Kind of walk us through, you know, an overview of what you presented.
1: Cool. So the way I see it is like there's these two competing views views on deep learning, like extreme views, which is deep learning will solve all our problems and deep learning is complete garbage. Or sorry, it's all hype. That's kind of exaggeration. But maybe for exaggerating views, you can say that. And there's evidence for each of these views. You know, like there's some amazing results of deep learning. There's some like extremely poor results on deep learning. Right. And the idea is that like these are not as informative of the stuff in the middle so the idea was okay. like you draw all this evidence in like this one-dimensional plane, yep. and you like try to like draw like a max-margin hyperplane. You would, might get like you this interesting decision boundary because like this is where the interesting stuff lies. Like this is the stuff that's going to be moving slowly over time if deep learning is doing well, right? Or the other way, if people are starting to like find all sorts of failure cases, mm-hmm. and the idea would be if we talk about like these examples and, like, the edges of our understanding or the edges of our everything or, like, edges of, you know, like, all the things that are limiting deep learning nowadays and, like, keeping us from solving all of our dreams, um, that can hopefully give people an impression of, like, what everything else is like because it's, like, just very extreme on the other end of the spectrum. And I feel like that's just not very much talked about because, mm-hmm. like you said, like, a lot of people are on the deep learning hype train or mm-hmm. um, kind of being sad at home and, like, being grumpy because now... All of the all of the questioners are silenced, right? Hmm. Um, so so yeah. if, we've,
0: if we kind of map out what the corner cases are and the failure modes and things like that, mm-hmm. it'll help us push forward our understanding of this thing. Is the basic yeah. premise and
1: kind of like acknowledging it also um, helps. I don't think what I did was the greatest acknowledgement of it, but I think it was a more thorough one than I've seen before uh-huh. and realistic, especially in that. Um, I think that sometimes just understanding your problem really well mm-hmm. um, really helps you to solve that problem. So I know now that... I mean, like, I, I do research as well, um, and this stuff's very important to me. Um, and by looking at it from, like, a so kind of a higher level, I can kind of see better, like, this seems like something that looks really promising to me, or mm-hmm. this doesn't seem promising at all, right? Mm-hmm. Like, for example... Um, one of the problems with deep learning nowadays is everything's very local, right? Like, um, you get local lo- in what sense? Um, you use the gradient, mm-hmm. right? Or maybe higher order uh, derivative things. Mm-hmm. But they, for practical purposes, you use the gradient and this can be insufficient for some applications, right? Mm-hmm. And it makes you, th- like, by th- like going to a higher level, um, maybe I can start with a lower level, right? Like SGD doesn't work for my spatial transformer network. This mm-hmm. is unfortunate. Like, let me try Adam. let me try RMSProp. But if you go to a higher level, you realize that the problem is the local learning in the spatial transformer network, not necessarily the gradient descent. So, so tell
0: us about spatial transformer networks oh, and what sorry. those are. And- yeah,
1: so this is just one example I use of yeah. a kind of network that it's very easy to see the issues of local learning with. And it's very nice because it's a, it's a differentiable network. It's very easy to see exploration problems right. in reinforcement learning domains, right. but this is one that you have a derivative of, and uh, y- it should be easier to optimize, and it is, but you sometimes don't get what exactly... You, you It doesn't, like, fulfill its full potential. So do, are, you,
0: are you kind of seeing that there are a lot of people coming into the space that you, know, that, you know, try to throw deep learning at a given problem? The common way of solving it is using stochastic gradient descent, and they don't really think about you know, how that's working and that it's, you know, finding a local optimization and there are some problems that, you know, for which they get kind of stuck in that local and...
1: That is unfortunately the case. Like, I have seen many people introduced to deep learning who think that let's stitch together an architecture that's differentiable and then mm-hmm. bingo, bango, call it a day. We've, like, solved problem X, right? Like, they they're, they, they they realize the latest... Set, the, the limitations of requiring large data sets, but they, mm-hmm. they think that, that that's what it amounts to. And I think often ta- very oftentimes it doesn't. So back to spatial transformer networks, mm-hmm. what they are is basically, instead of like a single network that learns how to classify an image, you have two networks. One mm-hmm. of them learns which part of the image to look at, and the other part takes what that network looked at and does the classification on it. Mm-hmm. And this is a huge advantage because a lot of the times your input image might be really large and you don't want to run the network over all, all of it. Mm-hmm. It might have like unnecessary information. Um, it might be really useful to like co-localize, so, like have the where as well as the what. Mm-hmm. So there's really good reasons to use this. And in fact, for medical problems, if it worked well, I would use it for everything, number one. Mm-hmm. And number two is if it worked well, I would use it for every computer vision problem. Because what these spatial transformer networks can do is not only find the region, but it can also... Um, transform the region into a canonical location, so rather than having to learn filters of like, cats at every orientation, mm-hmm. you might have to learn filters of cats at only one orientation, which like, would reduce in, result in like, much better data and parameter efficiency. Um, but back to the issue here is that you have these two networks that are they're not competing, but they're working together, but they're only using the current network, the current other network as its source of signal, basically. So, if your right. classification network gets really good early on in training, your localization network gets stuck in this optima, right? Because, like, if it changes anything at least a little bit, mm-hmm. your classification network will do worse. So, like, the gradient tells it, like, hey, hey, just, just stay, stay where you are, you're pretty good, or move you around a small region, right? Mm-hmm. Which might be very far from the intended purpose, right? Of, like, correctly, like, zooming all the way into the thing you care about and, like, rotating it a lot. And on the other hand, if the spatial transformer network um, converges early, so imagine the classification network is garbage, it might zoom into, like, regions of the image that are just independent of the class but makes the classification network tends to perform a little bit better on. So um, uh, it might, like, for example, if you're trying to classify kinds of dogs or, like, ImageNet, and it turns out, like, your classifier starts out, like, just being good at telling grass means dog, and mm-hmm. the localizer notices and, like, just zooms into the grass, right? Like, those zoom, 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 grass, And basically you've cut the dog out of the image. And the moment you've (laughs) cut the dog out of the image, you get no gradient signal. And when you have no gradient signal, you're stuck there forever. Mm -hmm. And this is a problem that people um, just don't really like to acknowledge in networks, right? Like, that's that's actually a very complicated relationship because now you need to, like, maintain a balance Mm -hmm. in all of that. And I don't think people even know how to do that. Like, people don't know how to do it with generative adversarial networks either, Mm -hmm. which is another example I gave of this. Yeah,
0: yeah. Huh. Um, so, what was the, what was the overall structure of your talk?
1: Um, so, the title of the talk was "Deep Learning: Modular in Theory and Flexible in Practice." Uh-huh. So, I want I first wanted to talk about the successes of deep learning, not not get any, or rather, to show that deep learning is very modular and it can do a lot of things, mm-hmm. and you know, get them into the mode like, "Wow, we can solve everything." Mm-hmm. And I actually think that I had a somewhat bold claim to end that first part, which is that deep learning, today's deep learning components can solve any problem, um, any, like, computable problem mm-hmm. um, if you ignore the practical aspects, which would be... <laughs> I mean, right, I, I, right. Think, I think it's interesting to point out, right? Because then, now that you isolate that, you know that the practical aspects are the issue, right? Right. And those practical aspects are data, software, optimization. Um, in probably order of difficulty of how to understand them. And the latter part of the talk, I talked about these issues with deep learning, like specifically data, software, optimization. Mm-hmm. And I had a final section on understanding just because I wanted to point out that while understanding is not necessary mm-hmm. for like getting things to work, which maybe is what we care about, mm-hmm. the understanding is very necessary to make progress. Right? right. And we just it's amazing how little we understand about anything.
0: Well, let's come back to that and maybe walk through the different sections. So data, um, walk us through... The, the points that you were driving home around that.
1: Okay, so um, from a super high level, it's that neural networks are extremely data inefficient, right. and they don't have to be that way. And data efficiency is the root cause of all problems because if we were data efficient, the size of data sets wouldn't matter. Right. Um, the data sets we use are kind of flawed, mm-hmm. in that like they have known issues that you know researchers know about. Um, that known issues explo-
0: like they're noisy or like what kinds of known issues? Um,
1: like, Pantry Bank is a very small data set. Therefore, mm-hmm. making bigger networks is not very helpful because it overfits. Therefore, you should generally only publish regularization research on it or something no. like that.
0: So you're referring primarily to kind of the known yeah. data sets. that the commonly Net, used That kind of thing. It's the
1: kind of things that, you know, like the mainstream deep learning researchers publish on to right. convince them, hey, I have something cool. Use my thing. Right. And that is... I mean, it's important, right? Like, the alternative is publishing a dataset that no one knows about, which is also very hard to right. get any information from. But.
0: Well, one has kind of a... It's almost like a reproducibility kind of issue where there are elements that are inherent to the data set that, you know, drive towards or, or require a certain class of solution.
1: Yeah. It's a horrible state of affairs where, um, like, you need to, like if you you know you read a paper the paper usually has the high level it doesn't have all the low level details that's what mm-hmm. the codes for and you implement the paper exactly as it says mm-hmm. and it gets not anywhere near close to what they were they had right, right? and you're like yo what the f um, and then you know you maybe you email the authors maybe they eventually read the source code and you run the source code cuz you don't believe them and you're like wow it just reproduces exactly what the author said and it turns out like it just has like a bunch of magic hyperparameters. Like you set, you know, L two regularization to this. <laughs> you need this learning rate schedule for sure. Use this optimizer, right? And um, also preprocess your data set in this way and sample it in this way. Mm-hmm. And like these are all things that you really want to be robust to, right? And you just you just aren't, right? Like that is, it's a, it's a very unfortunate like aspect of the world, right? Like the, uh-huh. you're you're put into this position where. Um, if you don't do, you know, if you don't play the game, you never get state up the art results and people don't listen to you. Mm-hmm. If you do play the game, um, I mean, some people listen to you, but some don't because they know the game, mm-hmm. but then like, it's the only way to get people to see your thing.
0: And, and by the game, you mean in terms of the researchers, like they're driven to publish, you know, you know, win in the competitions for whichever data set that they're looking at. Is it's that usually the not you're...
1: competitions, but it's usually like you want to get people interested in your papers. Yeah. And it's very different if you just didn't care and you wanted to publish interesting things, right? Right. Um, but if you want to get eyeballs, sometimes, like, unless you're already a respected person, it's kind of what you have to do. Yeah. Right? So, um, like, ide- like, uh, it, so- sometimes that kind of thing is important. I think that it's kind of a very qualitative thing, mm-hmm. um, which is unfortunate in the data world, mm-hmm. that it gets to get a feel of a data set, like when this data set's starting to get, like, really overfit, mm-hmm. that um, perhaps it's not useful anymore. And I feel like some researchers, like, qualitatively feel that about, like, CIFAR-10 and CIFAR-100. Mm-hmm. Especially CIFAR-10, I'm not 100% sure about CIFAR-100 as and much. what's that data set? Um, this is a data set of 32 by 32 RGB images. Okay. It's a popularly used baseline because um, it's a very small baseline. And so do,
0: images of anything in particular? Uh, CIFAR-10
1: 10 has 10 classes. Okay. So, 10 common classes. Um, and they are... Um, it's a popular data set because it's a really small data set, 32 by 32 images. You barely see anything. Mm-hmm. And it's not MNIST because people have, like, basically decided, like, MNIST research is not enough. Mm-hmm. So, like, they just don't listen to MNIST research at all, right? And it's starting to be that way for CIFAR 10 mm-hmm. just because we're getting to be so good on it now. Okay. Um, and, and, yeah, there's just known limitations that makes it, it makes it hard if you have a genuinely good result to tell people that you have a genuinely good result. Mm-hmm. Especially because, like, as you scale up, like, it's also very computationally demanding, right? So,
0: and um, you you describe the the data sets as being overfitted.
1: Oh, for sure. Which uh,
0: uh, explain elaborate on that because I tend not to think of data as being inherently well. The algorithm. The, com- the, are... the
1: community is overfitted. They said not even the algorithm itself. Oh. There's actually this cool test that someone did. I can't remember who, where they showed us like four pictures yep. of images, and they asked. Like, these are, these are the four data sets. Or, sorry, maybe not. They said, like, do you know what data pi- set this, this picture is from, this picture is from, this picture is from, this picture is from. Right. Like, many people did. Like, ZIFAR is a very canonical data set. Right. Um, uh, there's a places data set. There's uh-huh. a li- large scene understanding one. Right. And there's ImageNet, which is, like, more general. So, ba-
0: so you're basically saying that... If someone can recognize We know the data these data set, sets so well, we're we, designing we solutions find, yeah, to them exactly. that are not generalizable or not yes. adequately generalizable. And, like, people have
1: actually reported, like, negative results are generally not reported as much because right. there's just so much of it, right? It's a very empirical field. So maybe this is uninteresting now. Right. But um, this just happens so much. Like, people have noted that um, the Inception architecture yep. seems to work much better in ImageNet than it does in other tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a pretty complicated thing, right? Right. right. So maybe maybe that makes sense. Or um, I, I've had friends that I talk to, I'd hate that I, a lot of my references are friends, but there's like the field moves so fast right. that like sometimes even archives can't keep up, which yeah. is I think super awesome for being in it. Where and anyway, they chat about sometimes how ResNets um, oftentimes don't work for their computer vision architectures, right? Or one of the, the best um, practitioners of using ConvNets, um, a friend of mine, Sander Dieleman, he works at DeepMind. Mm-hmm. He has not been able to find BatchNorm to work for him, and I find that to be really interesting. Like, is it because all of his other parameters are tuned to batch norm? Mm-hmm. Is there something that he solved that batch norm solves also that is not necessary? Mm-hmm. Is, does, is is he just wrong? Um, honestly, I don't know. But I think that there's a bunch of cool stuff there that maybe we can figure out, right? And
0: and is this inherent issue inherent to deep learning, or is it just the approach we've taken?
1: Oof. Um, I, mean, I would argue that it's not even an issue in deep learning. It's actually, like, maybe we can look at the bright side of this, of, like, it's a miracle uh-huh. it even works. <laughs> um, so um, going to the understanding topic, right? there's, n- as far as I know, no practical theory in deep learning. Like, right. there's nothing that can actually, like, guide us right. to understandings. Like, there's what I call stories. Like, every paper has, like, a high-level story of this is why sure. I think it works. Yeah. And if you, like, really try to vet the story really well, you can, like, very easily like disprove that. And I know of no story that's, like, 100% bulletproof. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm willing to make that claim. And so we have these stories, and, like, they, they guide people, but they, they rarely work out as useful tools, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So what we have instead is empirical results. Mm-hmm. What we do is we want generalization. Generalization right. is kind of like a lofty concept, and we we don't really know like it's not like you can in like traditional statistics you can kind of do that um, but like in deep learning it's just much harder because you have so many parameters like yeah. you can't really measure well you can measure the VC dimension but it's really it's so big that it doesn't matter um, there's a lot of things that what's the
0: VC dimension
1: it's I probably would screw this up but I'll give you like my best like first order approximation of what it is it's roughly how um, powerful your model is. So it shows, it kind of corresponds to like how much data you need in order to get generalization. Okay. So like very curvy, powerful models have like a very high VC dimension, mm-hmm. which means that you need a lot of data. VC
0: doesn't stand for very curvy, does it? No, it stands
1: <laughs> for, I know the V stands for Vapnik. Okay. Um, and the C stands for another person's name. Okay. Um, sorry. Um, So generalization, like in a, you know, like in the very old school machine learning sense, the sense yeah. that... I don't think we'll come back to personally um, like you could have bounds on like how much data you need in mm-hmm. order to get like this epsilon difference between train and right. test and stuff like that and that's just not something that's going to happen in deep learning and as long as we keep using deep learning we're probably not going to get that Right. so what we have is empirical results and with these empirical results we just have a bunch of experiments and a bunch of data sets and mm-hmm. we show like it seems to work on the data sets we've tried um, hopefully it works on everything and so like this is where you might see it as a pro but I sorry as a con but I see this as a huge positive of deep learning right like it's actually super cool that it generalizes right mm-hmm. like you can get a new computer vision task um, I use computer vision because like that's one of the easier um, domains and yeah. you can have a ton of data and you can just generalize you know you can use it to generalize you can use ImageNet features to generalize in that, that, that that's just not something that makes sense right mm-hmm. um, I mean like if you look at it from like a really strict perspective of like there's no guarantee that this should work but it right. tends to work and that's really interesting, all right? And I think that there's something uh, about deep learning that allows it to generalize so well. Mm-hmm. You know, you can even generalize to domains that you've not even trained on. I think that mm-hmm. there's been some work on generalizing image net models to cartoons. Mm-hmm. And, like, even, like, cartoon drawings of the things that they were classifying sometimes activate. Right. or There's something related to that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a... Wonder of deep learning. I actually there are some experimental results that try to explain after the fact why things work, but right. without being falsifiable, it's questionable how useful it is. Um, so perhaps maybe deep learning is exploiting some of these kinds of explanations. There was a recent one on physics okay. that um, that deep learning is the mo- like deep learn the kind the class of things that deep learning is very good at fitting are. A very like a very natural class of functions. Therefore, since deep deep learning models only can fit like a efficiently fit a small subset of the function space, but that happens to be like very common, um, like based on physics, um, kinds of functions that would occur.
0: Okay. Hmm. So you started out talking about data and that overfitting problem, and then mm-hmm. uh, tools was that the network software software software
1: I. There's two more things in data, though. Okay. Which is that the data we have, which is problematic, there's the data that we, so the data we have and we use, like data sets. There's right. the data we have that we don't use. And there's like tons and tons of data that we have that we don't use that I think that we just don't know how to use well. Um, unsupervised learning, multitask learning, transfer learning, we kind of use, but we don't do very smart things, I think. Uh-huh. Um, and even like there's implicit stuff like the trajectories of the networks that you've passed through. Maybe there's some interesting information there. And the last kind was, the data that we don't have that we need, like, for example, measuring these things that we really care about mm-hmm. that we are just missing right now. Like, we have, we have no way of measuring long-term dependency, like, how well networks capture long-term dependencies. We don't mm-hmm. have, like, a general RNN benchmark. Mm-hmm. We don't have a good benchmark for visual attention. Um, we don't have a good benchmark for hierarchical learning. Like, how do we even know if we're learning hierarchical stuff, right? Do we want to learn hierarchical stuff? Um, I don't know, but, like, if... I would think that if we want to learn something, having a benchmark for it would be really good, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that was roughly it for data. Okay. Um, from a software perspective, it was more about, like, how the tools we use nowadays really limit what we can do. And, like, every tool is flawed in some ways. Okay. This hits home for me personally because I'm a software engineer. Okay. Um, and I want to use really good tools.
0: You mean TensorFlow doesn't solve every problem in the universe?
1: Uh, no, not, <laughs> not yet. I think they introduced some really good ideas. Um, they definitely brought something to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it alone isn't enough. Um, yeah. It might... like the, the, like the, I think better things could be built on top of it. I don't think that it's the low-level components that are a problem, and I actually don't think, like, hardware is that big of an issue. Uh-huh. Like, as big of an issue that people um, make it out to be. Um, in, in, in theory, in practice, if you really want to, if the art results and things, sometimes that's needed, but mm-hmm. there's, like, higher-level problems that you can solve without hardware. Mm-hmm. So the idea with, behind software is that you can, like, very, like, easily see situations where, um, the, like, the software we have actually prevents us from doing what we want to do. Mm -hmm. So I I think I have, like, two examples that really resonated with me were that um, an example of bad software is when um, it's easier to explain in words the technique than it is with code. Because ideally you want to, like, express ideas. You want, like, the flow from ideas to code. It be really right. easy. And the flow from ideas to words is generally pretty good. And that just means like, you have a bottleneck and like, words to code. And mm-hmm. maybe it's a reality of life, that it'll never be that simple.
0: Did you provide a specific example?
1: Um, yes. Could you? I, I had like, a list of like, many examples okay. of like, different kinds of um, tricks that are hard to do in various frameworks. Mm-hmm. So the, depending on the framework you do, some things can be kind of difficult. So like for, what is it? For um, so when you
0: say tricks and frameworks, the, the basic idea being you know, kind of the uh, at you know, the research, I, I did see that you th- put a lot of papers, you were just showing a lot of papers, which is great, documenting kind of where the ideas came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the research, you know, we're introducing all these various tricks to improve solvability of the, of the deep learning networks, and it's not, what I'm hearing is the tools are, you know, on the one hand, you know, great, they're incre- they're raising the level of abstraction and making this stuff, you know, more easily adoptable, but
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, that also prevents us from implementing some of these tricks, which have to be plugged in at lower levels. Yeah, Is exactly. The-
1: so, um, when I mentioned trick, I use that as a general term of, like, this, like, one unit of thing that you do to a neural network. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you can think of layers as tricks, but Right. Tricks being more than just layers, like for example, an additional regularizer might be a trick right um or doing like they could be pretty complicated, I think, like doing unsupervised pre training might be a trick, and the argument that I would have is that no framework makes everything really easy, and right. easy in this sense is that i would l I would ideally like it such that um everything just gets solved for me. Like, I would be able to, like, yeah. uh, like, this is probably not going to happen, but we can get closer, right? Like, I would like to express, like, very declaratively, like, what I want this neural network to be. Uh-huh. Like, literally, like, take this neural network in this database, apply this transformation, um, run this transformation, um, do it right. on this, uh, like, train on this training set. Like, I want it to be that simple. And, I, uh, like, I don't think it can be, but, like, striving towards that I think is good. Sure. And like a lot of the frameworks, like TensorFlow, um, doesn't support a bunch of the things. Like it makes it a large number of lines of code in order to do something rather than few. Mm-hmm. So what would be an example? Like batch normalization is like a pretty simple thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, or sorry, it's a. It's actually not a very simple thing in terms of implementation, but like many frameworks can do batch normalization very very well. Like right. Torch can do batch normalization amazingly because like they can just implicitly keep its state and in torch like each of the nodes applies its updates on its own like when flowing through the grad and like applying the updates um so that's very good um but um tensorflow for example like in order to apply batch normalization, you have to have to do quite a few things right like you need to create like some state for if you're doing the rolling mean approximation you need to create some state for the mean some state for the variance you need to make sure to like apply the updates to this thing. You need to only apply the updates at training time. And then it becomes, like, much more complicated than just, like, calling a layer on something, mm-hmm. right? Um, depending on how you wrap it, of course. But it's, like, this This kind of thing is just a layer in Torch, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, every framework has its trade-offs, but I just don't think that we are at, like, the efficient frontier yet of, like, this is, like, we, like I, I think we can get benefits for free, basically. Mm-hmm. And I actually have written a few libraries... That, um, that try to get these benefits for free, and I think they've been pretty successful. Um, I'm still experimenting with them because I, I think there's just so much to do there. But it's, a, it's an open problem.
0: And are these libraries... Uh, are these standalone frameworks or libraries that plug into other existing frameworks?
1: Um, mostly they go on top of Fianna or TensorFlow because okay. I think that they actually are both. Um, I think that they're both, like, very good baselines. So I'm a big fan of the computational graph. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the design of Theano is actually, like, quite excellent. I'm a huge fan of Theano and its developers. Mm-hmm. Um, it has the downside of distributed computing. Um, but I think that its abstraction level is actually quite good. Like, it can capture that abstraction level very well. Its optimizations are, like, things that I probably wouldn't do by hand anyway. So, yeah. like, you get them for free. Um it's it's a it's a very I'm more focusing on Theano TensorFlow is similar but mm-hmm. kind of has a mix of abstraction levels. So um, I'm, I'm focusing on the low level aspect. I think the, those low level aspects are actually like quite good. Like they might actually be on an efficient frontier of trade offs. You know, like okay. trading off like usability versus um, usability versus like um,
0: flexibility or yeah, flexi- yeah, flexibility yeah. or
1: performance and. I think that that's like there's the, that's just one view, right? Like right. use a you know have a computational graph have like all of the basic operations in there. Um, optionally use an optimizer in order to do that. Like another view would be like the torch or Cathayish view, where you bundle up the pieces of functionality that have a lot of like the the highly optimized pieces, right? And mm-hmm. like that's the view you go for hi- max performance, which I think is also very different philosophically, but right. there's nothing wrong with either of these views. So right. I'm, I'm fine building on top of that.
0: Just knowing what you're using.
1: It's more of, yeah, it's more of the level and how you construct the computational graph, mm-hmm. which I think should be independent of Theano or TensorFlow. Like, these are just different levels, right? Like, mm-hmm. you could have, like, a really nice low-level thing, but change the high-level thing on top of it, and it should be fine, mm-hmm. which is why I'm not the biggest fan of TensorFlow's, like, many different abstraction levels, and I think most of... Well, all of the best people I've talked to who use TensorFlow, they kind of only use a little bit of it, Mm -hmm. and they think that a bunch of it is, like, um, it's not the greatest, but I I don't care. I'm not using it. Okay. And, like, it's at those high levels that I think is very interesting. And, like, that's also where the user interacts with it, right? Like, if you're having code interact with code, it doesn't matter. You can have, like, the ugliest interface in the world. Like, your compiler can just, you know, switch things around and all of that stuff.
0: Okay. So data, software... What was the third Optimization. piece? Optimization.
1: So I touched a little bit into it with local learning.
0: Yeah. And
1: yeah. Andre Karpathy had a great quote, which I can't remember off the top of my head, but it roughly goes along the lines of that neural networks only do memorization. They don't do thinking. Mm-hmm. And this is problematic because... This is already not as quote, but this is problematic because we'd ideally like them to think. We want them to do, like, cool, right. complicated things right. that, like, blow our minds in their coolness, right? And they do blow our minds already, but perhaps those things were simpler than we thought. Yeah. And what's going to happen when we want to do something pretty darn complicated, yeah. right? Like, we'll, we'll see, right? Like, there's some tasks that we think that would require some pretty complicated levels of thinking in order to do. Perhaps mm-hmm. playing StarCraft, you need to, like think many moves ahead and imagine what the opponent's going to do in order to right. like take actions. And neural networks are not very good at imagining what to do yet. Hmm. Um, maybe that will change, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, and Andrew Ng likes to say that on, as a heuristic of what neural networks can do is anything a human can do in less than one second. But, I mean, if that's a hard limitation, mm-hmm. then there's a lot of tasks that take more than one second for right. people to do. And right will this solve general AI for us? Maybe not, like, when you phrase it that way, right? right? So, um, and it, like, it should be possible, right? Like, it's modular in theory. Like, Mm -hmm. you can just just have architectures that, given a magic set of parameters, would solve that task. So the question is, how do we do that, right? And there's just many tricks on that. And I talk a little bit about the downsides of local learning, how um, we don't pay attention to exploration mm-hmm. in supervised learning. And, like, mostly it's pay attention reinforcement in learning, learning. But right. we treat it as, like, um, obviously the plane, like, there is some implicit um, exploration mm-hmm. because uh, you're, you know, you're using stochastic gradient descent. So your gradient's noisy. But roughly if it wasn't noisy, you'd, you know, be plopped on a point and you just hill climb down right. some direction and be stuck there. And, like, you don't even know how good of a solution that is. Right. Right. So that's that can be, I don't know, like, that, that can be very unsatisfying because if the answer is, I mean, this goes back to what I was talking about, like, in terms of limitations, like, maybe local learning just can't solve this, mm-hmm. right? And that would be super duper unsatisfying because local learning is, like, our most scalable learning algorithm we have, right? right? Like, using gradients is really really good for training lots of parameters like we're gonna have to have make like a lot of plant like a lot of different plants we want generally i without gradient descent right so yeah we, we, we're gonna have to figure it out or so we're gonna have to figure out tricks and how to do this better maybe tricks for more principled exploration and maybe this will make it such that these won't be problems anymore or at least or we'll find much harder problems right though hopefully always be problems hmm. um and that would that's what keeps the field going right yeah yeah but hopefully they're not intrinsic to the way we do optimization and people are making better optimizers. Yeah. Um, even though it's quite slow the progress.
0: Right. So data, software optimization and understanding. And we talked a little bit about that earlier. Yeah. Uh, are there, are you going to post your slides
1: up somewhere? Um, probably. I think that, well, the, I think I've, I think the O'Reilly people put the slides up somewhere. Okay. But they haven't asked me for the slides yet. I think they're supposed to do that after the presentation. Okay. Which is probably good since there was like last minute editing going on. Um, But it'll almost certainly be up somewhere.
0: Okay. And uh, how can folks, if folks want to learn more about what you're up to or find you, do you have a GitHub or Twitter? or?
1: I do have a GitHub. It's... Even though that's probably not a great way to contact what's a, what's someone. A, what's the, yeah, well, not contact, <laughs> uh, right? GitHub.com slash Diogo, D I O G O 149. Okay. And uh, probably email would be the best way. This is something that I love chatting about. It would be Diogo at, oh God, my company name's hard to spell, um, Analytic, which is E N L I T I C dot com.
0: Okay great cool thank you awesome hey thanks so much all right everyone that's it for today's interview please leave a comment on the show notes page at twimlai.com slash talk eight or tweet to me at at sam charrington or at twimlai to discuss this show or let me know how you liked it thanks so much for listening and catch you next time